Hey everybody, this is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the third installation of Jim Rutt being on my show, which is really awesome. He's the host of the Jim Rutt Show and former chairman of the Santa Fe Institute, which is a complexity research institute based in, you guessed it, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Jim is, as he describes in this podcast, a... What does he say? Like a crusty old fuck, <laughs> which is to foreshadow Jim's very witty and self-deprecating humor. He's very smart. He's got lots of ideas and has been playing this game of deep thinking and iterating and innovating and um, all these things for a long time. I call him the John Madden of Game B, and we get into Game B today, what it is, how we move from our current societal and economic and collaborative space into one that regenerates our relationship with the earth and reality and our own psychology. And we also get into Bitcoin, uh, money, the basis of money, um, and Jim even makes a case against Bitcoin, which is interesting. So it's a really fun episode. Jim is a hilarious and light person to talk to. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. If you like this show, consider becoming a patron like Jim became a patron after the recording. For as little as $5 a month, you can support this show. It helps so much. That's patreon.com slash airy in the air. I give coaching calls to my top tier patrons. So without further ado, here's some music and my talk with Jim Rudd. Jim, the John Madden of Game B, as I've coined you. Welcome oh back. <laughs> well, that kind of fits. I'm smart and I'm fat and I'm and I'm loud and I'm obnoxious. So yeah. I think it fits. It does. <laughs> and you're smart though. You're good. You're like, you're thinking, you're the dude. Um, so I want to start 
by hearing about this game that you've released on iOS that I've downloaded and started playing, I haven't gotten very far. You just the computer kicks my ass at this thing all the time. Tell me about this game you've released and what it's about. Yeah, thanks. Great opportunity to do it. And extremely timely. Uh, the game is called Network Wars. Network Wars, that's two words. And it's available on iOS, on the uh, Apple Store. And as of this morning, it's available in Android on Google Play. Oh, cool. So search uh, Network Space Wars and you'll find it. And it's, uh, you know, a phone game. Ta-da. Yeah. And uh, if I can, I'll pull it up here. And... Uh, that's what it looks like for uh, you know those of you who haven't played it yet. Uh, and I designed it originally as a science experiment uh, to uh, understand how, how humans learn in ways that are different than uh, the current crop of artificial intelligence that uses deep learning. Ah. Right? You, know, uh, you could learn this game with deep learning, but you'd have to play it probably 100,000 times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out humans uh, can learn it by playing it, you know, a way smaller number of times. In fact, I was just reviewing the deep data uh, on uh, player results, and there are some fucking geniuses out there. There's uh, somebody who has an, a win-loss record that's so good, it's amazing, and they've only played the game 104 times. Wow. Uh, they have a win-loss record of 88%. That's like, what? Uh, you know, it's like this person is ob- obviously you know, has able to see very deeply to extract patterns and most importantly, heuristics uh, at a level that's just mind blowing. I have never won, uh, even though I invented the game, I know how it works. I have also certain unfair advantages. I've never won more than 84% of a hundred games. Wow. One of the statistics that we show is, uh, you know, your win-loss rates for various time periods. And I focus on 100. And I always aim to, uh, to get to 80 out of 100. It's hard to do and you can't stay there. And I've gotten as high as 84. But I've never gotten to 85. This own bitch has the first 104 games, 88%. Jesus. Wow. And so anyway, the, 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 but on the other hand, there are some people that have played thousands of times that uh, have win-loss records in the 40% or 30% range. Uh, so people vary tremendously in their ability to extract the heuristics. And so uh, at least my model of how you learn this game is it's mechanically ridiculously simple. Right? You can learn to play it in what, 15 seconds, something yeah, like that? Pretty much. Yeah, maybe a minute if you're a slow learner. Uh, it, I based, it's basically of the risk family of games, though it's very abstract, and very simple. And I've tried to take all decisions out of it except who to attack next, right? That's all you do, either... Uh, it's a network of nodes, uh, kind of like an abacus or something. And you attack from one node to the other. And then when you're done, you say, I'm done for this turn. And that's the only decisions you make. Who to attack and when am I done? And all the reinforcements are handled automatically, uh, you know, everything else. And so you don't have to think about anything. So it's reduced to the barest essentials. But the strategic depth, as you have probably found, is quite deep. Uh, you know, the number of the ability to win consistently requires you to master many heuristics. Uh, in fact, soon after I'd written the game, before it was even on phone, I originally uh, floated it as a Windows app. And my tester said, yeah, it's sort of fun as Windows app, but this really needs to be a phone app. So I uh, added a phone front end on it. It's much better as a phone game. 
uh, I wrote down 50 different heuristics that I thought uh, were helpful in playing the game. And so what's a heuristic? Basically, it's a, a rule of thumb. Mm. Uh, it, you know, it turns out the world is way too complicated to uh, calculate what to do next algorithmically, even including things like what should I have for breakfast, right? And so uh, all animals, not just humans, but you know, every animal going back at least to amphibians has a whole series of rules of thumb uh, that basically says, huh, this is how I think about the world. This is a simplification of the world. And I act upon the simplification because the low level details are just way too complicated. Uh, and so that and I'm quite convinced that that is how humans learn most things. There's a few exceptions, things where formal logic will actually help you, right? Uh, but most things are way beyond the ability of a human to do formal logic or formal analysis. And I would say uh, network wars is way beyond the ability to formally calculate exactly what to do. Uh, and so you have to have rules of thumb. Okay. And as, as people work their way up and win loss record, my hypothesis is that they are mastering additional heuristics because every game is different. Every game presents a new set of puzzles, opportunities, and challenges. And so different heuristics come into play in different games. Some games, you know, you apply these three heuristics and you'll probably do okay. In this game, it's, it's five different heuristics, uh, et cetera. So anyway, that's, uh, that's sort of the motivation and the, and the theory behind it. And uh, sure as shit, the results are showing that people vary extremely widely in their ability to generate the heuristics and master the game. Mm. Okay. Yeah, I figured, I knew that there was some, I knew that you weren't just making fun little phone games because you like to make phone games. I knew that, especially as I realized that this was a strategy game, it's based in like nodes and strength of nodes and different amounts of connections, that even though it's quite simple, it is the strategy behind it becomes complex very quickly. And what you're saying about... um the varying degrees of different people to take this big world and put it into their little heads. And, you know, what you're saying about the world being so complex that we need these rules of thumb. It's almost like, um, I don't even know how to say it. It's almost like a filter that we use because the world is so big and our heads are so small. So that that. we can I love that expression. The world is so big, and I'd add so complicated. And yeah. so, let me give you an analogy that might work for you. You know, you're one of these extreme sports dudes, right? Uh, do you snowboard? I uh, grew up as a professional skier. That was my first sport that I was a professional in. Okay, but I can ride a snowboard quite well. All too. right. So you know, I, was, I just happen to use this as an analogy. Uh, I used to ski a bit too. Uh, and uh, but anyway, yeah. So snowboarding. But, uh, I guarantee you, you're not doing uh, analytical geometry in your head to calculate what angle to put the board in different situations, right? You have a whole series in your head, and many of them probably unconscious since you've been doing it for so long, of when, you know, the, my, when my vision shows me the following things ahead of me, my physical feedback of my body on the forces are this, that the tilt angle is Y, then there's just a handful of choices that you actually have to do this, 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 or this. Mm -hmm. And you are actually using probably something like 20 or 30 uh, inputs, and you probably have something like five or 10 knobs that you can turn a little bit. 
and you've you've simplified the world down into these inputs and this relatively small number of outputs. Because when you're going down the mountain really fucking fast, uh, you can't sit there and go, okay, F equals MA, right? Yeah, exactly. uh, you know, ain't gonna happen. We're, yeah. You know, we are not only is our head small, it's slow. You know, the clock speed of the mm. human neuron is uh, basically uh, one millisecond. So you, you're the fastest a neuron can fire is about a thousand times a second, uh, as composed to a, uh, say, a high-speed computer chip could be doing four billion calculations wow. a second. On the other hand, of course, we have uh, ten. Uh, you know, we have hundred billion neurons. So the total capacity in a brain is still more than a computer, but but no, by no more than a few hundred by factors of a, a few thousand at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's slow, and so you don't have time to do deep analysis. You only have something like. Let's say if, if your neurons can only click a thousand times a second, uh, you have to make decisions. And what do you think for an expert? Uh, you have to make a decision about uh, 20 times a second, maybe something like that. Uh, Man, I don't know. It, 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 it's interesting because the I feel like the concept of decision is inappropriate there, right? Like as I'm hauling ass down the mountain on my skis, the idea of decision. Yeah, you're not, you're not doing it. I'm not deciding just, anything. It's just doing things, right? Exactly. But it's doing, it's unconsciously. Of course. Decision. Every time you move your weight a little bit, that's a decision. Absolutely. And yep. you're not, you're not doing it explicitly because again, yep. your conscious mind can only process four clicks per second, way too slow. You way die, slow. right? Yeah. You tried to, you know, even a, you know, an amateur clown, you know, if you try to, you know, snowboard by intellectual activity, uh -huh. uh, you know, you won't make it five feet before you fall over on your nose and plow a groove in the snow. Right. Uh, so it's all unconscious. The more you learn it, the better, but you are making decisions. And so let's say it's 20 times a second, which is a lot. I mean, very few things require 20 decisions a second, but snowboarding on a double black diamond just might. Mm -hmm. uh, and if the uh, neurons only click at most uh, a thousand times a second, uh, that means you have at most 50 clicks in, in the processing of your brain uh, to make the next move. And 50 clicks ain't diddly, right? No uh, it, so it all has to be done on a relatively small set of inputs that are wired to a small, relatively small set of outputs and these rules of thumb, uh -huh. what to do. When, it, when, you feel the, you're, when, the, when you feel the forces like this, then you do that, right? You know? Yeah, so, so it, it's almost, as, as we kind of go into this, it's, it seems like we're kind of outlining what is one of humanity's greatest traits is the ability to take this miasma of input and just cut so much of it out. You know, the, to, to take the signal from the noise and to bypass our conscious brain so that we can actually haul ass down a mountain through the trees on varying snow conditions, you know, like all these different things. And varying lighting conditions. Exactly. Like in so the much. Fog, right? You know, all kinds yeah. of crazy shit. Right? And then your legs start burning and your technique yeah. changes a little bit and just like. And you're so hungover. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, or you're mad at your girlfriend. I mean, so exactly. many different things in your state that can change all that. And yeah. And that's this deep bodily uh, uh, kind of procedural uh, learning that our brain does. But yeah. So. Like, and for network wars, it's kind of like one step above that, right? We're not quite down at the unconscious. So after you played a lot, you, you know, it's almost like you're no longer thinking about it. But this is the kind of thing where you still have to, where you think about things. So this is like, uh, I don't know what it's on par with. But, okay, so let me give you these. I have two little anecdotes here that uh, have that are 
relevant and have been recent. So just the other night, I walked across uh, the American Highline record. So we've rigged this slack line that's 1.15 kilometers long. So a really long slack line. And the experience, like the felt sense of walking across this thing is just like you're saying, I don't think right foot forward, right knee out, left arm down, put your head forward. I don't control my body consciously. My body is its own very complex machinery that essentially walks across the slack line on its own. There is some kind of cognitive element in it that sometimes like keeps pace, keeps timing, sets ex expectations. It helps know when it's time to rest or slow down or speed up. It also helps like make sense of what the, my body is feeling, whether that's fatigue or whether it becomes difficult or whether it becomes easy or it creates and deals with my pride all these different things. But what I've noticed is that, so this is the, this is the fourth time in my life that I've set the American record that I've walked across the slack line longer than anybody's done in the country. I remember the first time that I thought I could do it. And so I tried really hard. And when I got off, I was like really exhausted. But at this point, I realized that I actually not only do I cognitively think I can do it, that knowing that I can do it has become deeply embodied. And my body goes out of the high line and is fucking relaxed. That's so cool. That's it's amazing. so, it's so and, cool. And that's the human superpower. In fact, it's actually not just the human power. It's the animal superpower. Because you imagine, uh, let's say a, a monkey that lives in a treetop, right? And seldom hits the ground. It has, and this is why I, this is why we think humans have such good uh, depth perception, better than we probably actually need. And I don't know if you've ever compared a human uh, vision with a dog's vision, for instance, but human vision is a lot better than a dog's vision because uh, they don't have that much reason to have life or death decisions about depth perception. Uh -huh. But a monkey jumping from one tree to another, uh -huh. life or fucking death, right? No uh, it's up at the top and it falls 80 feet. You know, it, it could easily die or be seriously injured. And so primates, our line from the time of the monkeys in the trees, uh, develop the eyes move from the side, like where a dog's more or less are, or a deer's. Deer's are way back here. Dogs are kind of here. Humans are kind of here. Monkeys are even, some of them even more so. And it's for depth perception. How far is that branch, right? Uh -huh. And uh, and then so the, the tasks and the biology and the brain wiring all co-evolved together uh, for monkeys to be able to have amazing depth perception so they can leap through the trees. Uh, you know, at a, if you've ever seen my dad and I've been down to Costa Rica a few times and the monkeys in the trees are like, holy shit, these guys are as good as Ari almost, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in terms of just flying through the woods, yeah, right? Without, without dying, that's a good thing. And uh, so all, you know, all advanced animals have this ability to process information, coarse grain it down to a relatively small number of inputs. So our small brains in this big and complex world are able to actually deal. And that was the whole uh -huh. idea of network wars was to instantiate that in a really simple, fun game. Uh 
Yeah. Uh, and, and, and one that we have no training, we have no biology to help us, right? We're, we were not evolved to play network wars. Uh, and so we have to learn it. In the same way we have to learn to read is a good example. We all, we have biology probably uh, to teach us how to talk. But reading is a completely unnatural act for which we have no biology for. And so we use some biology uh, skills that were given to us for other purposes, like the ability to pull pull objects out of a cluttered field uh, and some other processing and some tricks we don't even understand yet. And voila, humans can now read. Uh In the same way, humans can learn network wars, even though they don't have any biology to support that. And in fact, in some sense, some of the biology we do have uh, will lead you in the wrong direction in network wars. You have to overcome some of your uh, instinctual plays. You probably uh, you know what I'm talking about. How many games do you think you played on network wars? Eight. Oh, okay, so you may not have enough yet. You get to 25 or 50 and the light will come on. You know, some things that you think are intuitive. Nope. Nope. Uh-huh. They're wrong. They're wrong. Yeah, this is interesting. And I, I want to tell the tell you the next anecdote that actually layers this on another scale of magnitude of complexity here. Okay. So hit me up. So I, for the last couple of years have been racing my paraglider. Okay. And I think we've talked about paragliding before. Yeah. Remember? Oh yeah. I love paraglide. So cool. I, I, I core these thermals that are these updrafts of air, but now there's 120 of us and we're all doing this together at the same time. Racing racing. So it's like a sailboat race, but it's in the sky and it's in three dimensions and the substrate in which we're racing is invisible. And the best way to see this, the best way to see that air is rising is because you see a paraglider turning circles and going up, right? So we all race over to that guy and then we go up together. And then the guy that's the highest always has the best advantage. He's got the most question for you. How about, uh, you know, looking for birds of prey that uh, use thermals like vultures and shit. Okay, so a soaring bird is likely the second best indicator for lift. But the thing that makes a paraglider better is we know what a paraglider wants. And how much he needs, yeah. The bird could be just fucking around. But when we see a paraglider turning circles, we know that paraglider's trying to go up. Gotcha. And so, you know, soaring bird will turn circles when he's not going down. Soaring bird will turn circles when he's just fucking turning circles. So mm-hmm. seeing a bird turn circles, you kind of have to be like, is the bird actually going up? Sometimes like, uh, you know, in Chiapas, Mexico, there's, I have literally found, you know, call it 500 birds in a single thermal. And you can see the whole thermal, like for a thousand feet tall, you just see this, this cloud of ravens, you know? So, okay. But but to anyway, to, continue the tale. The tale, uh, and I had I had an awesome jam with Jordan Hall on this. Um, I told Jordan Hall about this uh, the idea that I basically have coined as uh, competition paragliding as collective intelligence, because it really is some mm. kind of embodied exercise of collective intelligence. And, that makes a shitload of sense the way you explain it. Yeah. Yeah. So so we have uh, these 120 pilots who were all trying to get as high and go as fast as we can. And we can see each other now. And so we are, you know, the big world, small head paradigm actually gets kind of chopped up into a bunch of small heads. And 
now there's like a layer of decision-making based on the decision-making of all the other small heads in the sky. Um, and what Jordan sussed out of this was that, you know, and one of the things I, I, I proposed was there's some really interesting relationship between competition and collaboration here. Because basically you all have to work together. You all have to fly in this thermal together. And sometimes it's slow and you have to be patient to get to the top. You can't just go off on your own because we as the gaggle, or as sometimes we refer to it as the brain, if you just leave the brain and think you're going to beat us, we're going to kick your ass every single time, every single time. The way that like this is that it ends up being a race is basically the last couple of moves. We basically all try to arrive within striking distance of the finish line together. And then we try to race to the finish line, but getting there, you know, like we're going to fly for four hours or something during the day. And we're basically just trying to stay within the lead gaggle and make the gaggle faster. And, and, well, that's and, the second order. Now, I just, I'm just asking a question because I'm so interested in strategy. Yep. Uh, it's it's kind of like bicycle racing, right? There's a lead gaggle. It's a peloton. Yeah. And uh, I guess that's what they call it. Yeah. But there's also just people who just aren't in the league with that lead, uh, that front gaggle. Of course. Just, and is that also true in your paragliding racing? Absolutely. If you had 100 racers, you don't have 100 people in the final gaggle. No, you don't. Um, so there's first a first order sorting on sort of gross skill. Right. Yeah. And so there's, there's the elites who can keep, so they're all going to fight it out to win. And then there's probably quite a long tail. that goes quite a way, long way back, just like network wars players. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting because in paragliding, I think it actually ends up being kind of like bike racing where the people who fall off that lead gaggle end up making their next gaggle because they need each other to, to, to fly as fast as they can. They all team up too. Right. So mm -hmm. You know, Jordan Hall referred to this as like the slipstream, but this is like a decision-making slipstream. It's not a physical slipstream. It's a slipstream of sense-making. Perfect, perfect analogy. I love it. It makes a whole lot of sense in that you guys are self-organizing, even though you're in competition. Yes. Cool. And so, of course, it's also sort of true, of course, for things like flocks of birds and uh, at schools of fish, right? They're competing for food. And yet... Uh, they they signal with each other to provide some defensive, uh, uh, you know, clustering. But there's always the tendency to cheat because you want to be on the outside, not the inside, etc. So yeah, that, uh, yeah. But and and also like, don't flocks of geese they like fly in that V formation because it actually um, disrupts the venturis that come yep. off of their the the vortices that come off of their wingtips. So it's actually just more efficient to fly like that. Yeah, for geese, uh, but less so for, say, grackles or something. It was just a big cloud of them, right? Uh -huh, yeah, okay. But yeah, geese are optimized around physics. And it is, that is even more interesting. And it's of course, the, the cool thing about geese is uh, the guy who doesn't get any break is the lead goose, right? Uh, and so they have a whole algorithm for how you switch off who's the lead goose and has to take the punishment of getting all the wind right in the face. Yeah, right? no kidding. Yeah, so anyway, yeah that's so your cool. Tale about uh, emergent uh, collective intelligence in para uh, para racing. I love it. Yeah. So the the thing that the thing that Jordan kind of sussed out of this, or that he put words to that I hadn't quite realized, because I realized that there was something happening here between competition and collaboration that you can't just go to win. You have to play the game with each other. You have to support each other. That's just how it goes. But what he said was there is 
how he defined it was there's basically an inversion of competition and collaboration where the world that we currently live in, capitalism, zero sum, game A, this whole thing is basically hinged on competition zero-sum dynamics. And then within that, we have collaboration, you know, even inside of companies, even inside of families, even inside of markets, we have this collaboration, but it's nascent compared to the competition that it's hinged on, where racing paragliders, it actually inverts that and it forces us to collaborate first because we have to fly within each other. You don't, you don't cut each other off in the gaggle. Like you just don't like, we, we yell at you on the ground and we humiliate you until you don't do that. So it's not like uh, boat racing where you try to cut the other guy's wind off. No, you don't try it. You, you literally need that person so yeah. that you can fly fast. So it's, it's, it's fundamental that we can collaborate and that we do so well. So like how we work together is, a, is just like a baseline for how fast we can all fly. And then on top of that is this competition that – if we all work together really well, we all get to the finish line faster. And then the race to the finish line is faster. It's, it's more interesting. It's more dynamic. It's the whole thing is just funner, better, faster. If we, if we work together, which we do. So it's, it's, it's inherent. And for me, I've been wondering because so many of us racing these paragliders, we're still competitive. We're still fucking, we're out there to win, you know? But the time frame that it be, that it's like a number of hours flying and also just like the nature of gaggle flying where we are like, you know, don't crash into each other, we could die. There's like these kind of like constrictions that keep our competition, our competitive nature kind of bounded. And that's neat. That's very, very useful idea to think about. It's useful, but my, my intuition is that there's some way instead of bounding our competitive drive that we can actually facilitate our collaborative drive and the gaggle gets faster. Because I think right now we're dealing with, it's almost like a game B game played by game A players that if we could actually have the game B game played by game B mindsetted players, that we'd actually get faster and better, and it would actually be more meaningful to us as people. I wonder if you could do something like this. I'm just throwing this out here. I don't know enough about the dynamics of the game. Uh, have you ever played the game Diplomacy? It's a very clever little game. No. And uh, it, it's basically seven countries kind of play in World War One at very macro level. But the, it, the really odd thing about it is that you can have uh, uh, coalitions. If it's a single player who wins the game, they have to take uh, the majority of the of the, the provinces on the game. But if two players uh, make a coalition, they have to take two thirds. Three players, three uh-huh. quarters. Right? Is there some way to have a collective victory? So in other words, huh. uh, that the, let's say the prize money only goes, to, well, it goes to uh, some combination of people who have combined fast times, right? Huh, so, that's so interesting. So that uh, let's say, uh, you know, you know we, we divide the money up like this if it's by individual, but if five people are really a lot faster than uh, any other five people, then they get all the money or something like that so that there is a uh, uh, you know an explicit incentive to cooperate because the, the the payoff for cooperation 
uh, if done well, but only if done well, is higher than the payoff for even being the best individual contributor. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so let's say the best individual contributor gets 10% of the pot, uh, while the, if five people can cooperate together and have an average time that's, that's better than anybody else, they get the whole pot. So I they actually that. make twice as much. Even the best, fastest guy makes twice as much under uh, kind of the uh, collaborative payoff. That's so interesting that you go to the scoring ranking thing as like the human incentive behind the game. I think that's a salient idea. Um, the things that come up for me there is like, one, there's like the world championships of paragliding that divide it by country. And it's almost like the Peloton where, you know, there's a team of three guys and, and, you know, like they basically, you know, some strategy might be that, the two guys who don't have the best chance to win are going to push really hard so that they can provide the slipstream for the lead guy who at some point is just going to break away and spend the rest of his energy trying to win. Right. Um, so uh, maybe there's something kind of like that in paragliding, but it's interesting that you bring up the, uh, the scoring because the scoring of these paragliding races is this fucking black box. It's really difficult to understand. And it's like all of these like algorithms that, um, basically compare everyone's track log. So like how far they are down course line and their altitude it didn't give me at any given time. And there's this weird, uh, scoring metric called lead points. So if you imagine that the race is like the gaggle, then basically no one is incentivized to push out. They're just waiting on the gaggle instead of like making the gaggle faster. They just think, oh, if I just stay with the gaggle and then I'll race to the finish line at the very end, then no one is incentivized to push. So they start doing these things called lead points, which basically if you are furthest down the course line, then you are getting these lead points, gling, 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 gling. And these lead points become a very powerful factor in determining who wins the day. Because, you know, one day we, like my best finish this year, I finished fourth in the day and I beat a guy, he finished sixth, but he won the day because the first half of the race he was just way off the front, just crushing everybody. Uh-huh. Well, that's kind of cool. I can see how that works. That, that, provo- that works against the tendency to lay back, right? It works against the tendency to lay back. And it also, I think in some way, kind of works against the collective incentive to be you know, part of the gaggle. You really kind of want to like lead out and push. But the thing is that everyone can get lead points. It's not just one person getting them. So being as far down the course line at any given time as you can is incentive to leave the climb that you're in and go. So if you could somehow make that payoff collective, right? So it went to a gaggle that moved faster than other gaggles. And maybe it's based on the gap, you know, uh, Rather than absolute time, it's the gap of your gaggle versus the other gaggle. So you're in a kind of inter-gaggle competition. Uh-huh. That's kind of cool. But okay, so basically what we're talking about here is incentive structures that move us away from individual competition and towards a collective reward system that rewards a more 
collective individualism, right? Because we're still talking about a uh, hierarchy of, of value of, you know, receiving a reward or payment or anything. What is the, we could say the market, what is the business? What is the, what is the analogy that fits here in, you know, like taking it out of paragliding and into our economy? What does that look like? Well, here's one obvious one that we talk about quite a bit in the game B world. Uh, and this doesn't, of course, address all the dynamic issues, uh, but employee-owned companies yes. uh, is a classic one where, you know, today in a typical entrepreneurial startup, two or three founders get 95 per year, 90, 95% of the, of, the, of the bling at the end, right? Yeah. Uh, in a co-op, it's basically one person, one vote, one person, one equity share. You can adjust it a little bit by time of service, but, you know, let's say that, you know, the total difference is maybe a factor of five. Uh, from the person who's, uh, you know, the janitor up to the person who's, uh, you know, at least for some of the time acting as the, uh, you know, the chief shot, shot caller. Uh, and that, in that case, you have a much stronger incentive to cooperate rather than to try to climb the, the, the tree and stab people in the back and all that sort of stuff, right? Uh, and of course, even the same is true, even when you're talking about non-equity, we're talking about salary, you know, and big corporations, you know, I played that game, I got the very high level in very large companies, right? Uh, and the payoff is gigantic. It's embarrassing how much they pay uh, us useless sacks of shit at the top of big corporations. Uh, but if we were paid less and the people at the bottom were paid more, there would be much more incentive for everyone to operate cooperatively rather than to spend a third of their time to figure out how they're going to climb the tree. So, and is this... This like employee owned, you know, like I know that like there's, I even think like there's a number of grocery stores in town yep. that are employee yep. owned. Yeah, we have one here in our region. And is this, I've heard the term um, like a flat, like a flat business. That's two different things. Uh, okay. Yeah. Cause uh, say employee owned and often it's in the form of co-op cooperative, which is a legal form. It's not a corporation. A cooperative is a different legal form of you know, the same general family as a corporation, but it has le different legal existence. Uh, flat means uh, a tendency to move away from a hierarchy of command and control. You know, the, you know, think of the U.S. Army, where everything is laid out, a private and a corporal and a sergeant and lieutenant, all the way, way, all the, you know, 14 layers up to a five-star general. In a flat organization, uh, there may be no bosses, right? Maybe self-organizing using uh -huh. something like holacracy or sociocracy or it may intentionally have only two or three levels uh, rather than 14 levels. At, and where people, frankly, if you, if you have a very flat organization, you know, in a typical uh, hierarchical organization, you don't want to have more than five to seven people reporting to each person. So, you know, the pyramid just gets bigger and bigger as the organization gets bigger and bigger. In a flat organization, you have 50 people reporting to a boss. If you have 50 people reporting to you, I can tell you as a former boss, uh, they better be damn good at self-management because you can't okay. direct them very much. You better hire a different kind of person who just gets very high level direction and frankly, mostly self-organizes with their peers. And so that's what flat means. That's You can have, you know, a brutal game, a motherfucker, uh, New York stock exchange, publicly traded company, and it can be organized in a flat fashion. Uh, or you can have a cooperative that's organized in a very hierarchical fashion. So there are two different dimensions. Uh, though I suspect you'd probably find that cooperatives uh, would tend towards uh, flatter organizational structures because that would be the preference of the people. 
And that's the thing about a cooperative, one person, one vote. So when you make decisions about fundamentals, like the corp, like how we're going to organize to work, the janitor has exactly the same vote as the shot caller. And uh, this is a obvious move towards uh, more of a game B dynamic. And what do you say to the idea that if you take away this ladder for people to climb corporately, then people will just sit on their asses? Well, and if in the current world, there's some truth to that. But in, in the game A, in a game B world where, we're, where we have different values, Right. We just we are not interested in the shiny shit. Right. Why do people want to climb the corporate ladder so they can get the fancy car and the big house and uh, the Rolex and all that sort of crap? You know, in, in game B, if we're successful and we take away the whole game of status through possessions, mm-hmm. then there'd be no reason to do that. Right. And in fact, uh, we do believe that this people still look for distinction. Right. They want to sh- show that they're good at something. So, you know, some people can get awards for being like goddamn great uh, assembly person or wonderful salesperson or some, something, but they may all get paid the same or, you know, maybe no more than a factor of five different. Uh, and if we, again, think about a game B, Proto B, a little village of Proto B people, uh, at least it's my vision of what a Proto B would be like. If somebody drove up in a Porsche uh, who lived there, everybody would laugh at them and probably drive them away. They'd say, what kind of asshole are you, right? You're, you're burning carbon at a prodigious rate, which is killing the planet. Uh, you're trying to distinguish yourself through a very expensive, shiny object. That is about as ungame B as you can be. So don't be that way, right? Yeah. And, and it's also, what do you, how do you, how do you carry anything in that? Where do your yeah, children fit in that? Exactly. It's fucking one seat. It looks uncomfortable. <laughs> There's no utility even. Oh, even if they're, well, okay, let's make it a Bentley SUV and make it more utilitarian and even more ugly, absurd and killing of the planet uh, in a, in a true game B proto B community you'd be laughed at and perhaps expelled for doing such a thing, right? But of course, if you were, you know, Joe Random uh, living in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, climbing the corporate ladder, uh, you know, rolling up in front of your 4,000 square foot house in your Bentley SUV, oh man, you're a stud, right? Uh, And so you have to change what the social systems uh, grant status for. Right. Yeah. And in fact, you have to make it an anti-status item. Someone drives up in a Bentley SUV. They are the asshole yes. of the week. Right. Yeah. And that is the big turn that brings game B into being. Because I would agree without that turn, without the social infrastructure, uh, uh, it won't happen. So that's why we're focusing on uh, building on the ground communities where people provide mutual reinforcement because personal change has to come through it has to co-evolve with institutional change uh-huh. and uh, community values are a form of an institution. So community norms are, are uh, a loose form of an institution. Uh-huh. And so you have to do the two together. Most people are not strong enough to, you know, play game B on their own by themselves in Stanford, Connecticut or Greenwich, Connecticut, surrounded by their neighbors in 4,000 square foot houses, right? Ain't going to happen, right? Uh, when they have, they're going to climb the corporate ladder to buy the Bentley SUV. Uh, but if you're living in this proto B village uh, where everyone makes more or less the same money, wears the same kind of clothes, eats the same kind of food, but has great camaraderie, real friendship, uh, you know, you could absolutely trust your neighbors with your children. Uh, so you're not on the hook for all the child raising, rearing, et cetera. Uh, 
uh, with that kind of institutional structure, it's possible, we believe, uh, for people to actually live an intensely game-based way. So you have to build the two together. I love that. Top down and bottom up simultaneously. Um, you know, I, you know, since you are the John Madden of game B, just tell me what your definition of game B is. You're like uh, your elevator pitch of game B. How we save the fucking world, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, quite literally, right? I laugh at that, but that's actually it. Uh, and I've gotten my head around this more than the last time we chatted because I am now starting to write uh, a, the book of game B, right? Great. Now, of course, I'll caveat it by saying this is, you know, one crusty old fox idea and game B by its very nature is uh, highly pluralistic. Uh So if I hear anybody uh, taking this thing as catechism, I'm going to come kick your ass. Uh, But nonetheless, here's Jim's view of game B. And it literally is going to be we're here to save the world, people. Uh, Game A did wonderful things. It brought humanity from poverty and oppression and ignorance, say, at 1700, not that long ago. When most people lived in dirt floors with smoky fireplaces and life expectancy of 35 years, right? Half the kids died by the time they were five uh, to our current world today, which is a shitload better. On the other hand, it did this through more and more intense use of energy, technology, materials, uh, monoculture and agriculture, which is killing the land and causing erosion, etc. It's literally not sustainable. It literally will kill us if we keep doing it. And it will certainly kill us fairly quickly if we keep accelerating. Because not only are we operating at a level which is not sustainable. I mean, and that's, this is not the buzzword sustainable. But this means if you just keep doing this, you will die. We are currently at that level already. And yet we're accelerating into using ever more water, ever more nitrogen, ever more energy, et cetera. And if we don't learn to stop doing that, and in fact, very substantially reduce our impact on the ecosystem, we are going to collapse, as a, at least as an advanced civilization. And so at least very roughly, uh, Americans need to cut their energy consumption at the current level of technology by about 80%. And yet, we also want to have a really good life. So Game B is thinking through what is it about life on the ground that would be really, really good, so much better than living today in you know anonymous suburb or even worse, a high-rise building where you live next door to somebody for 12 years, you don't even know them. Uh, instead, you have a rich face-to-face community. Uh, you do a lot of things together. As I said, you can trust the other parents to help you raise your kids. Education and childcare is built right into the community. Healthy eating is building right into the community. M- much of the food is grown locally using uh, you know, very sustainable permaculture processes, et cetera. And we think maybe not on day one, but we can eventually be able to provide a really great quality of life, 20 to maybe 30% of the energy consumption that a typical American uh, consumes today. And so we need to find the combined ways to get there of technology, social uh, development. So again, so life feels better, right? Because we, uh, we're not, we're not, uh, authoritarians. We're not like, uh, you know, Marxists or Wokies or something. We're not going to tell you, you have to do this, right? We're saying, come see what we're doing. And if you think it's a better way to live, come join us, right? Uh-huh. And and yet be very light uh, on depleting the Earth's resources, or eventually not depleting the Earth's resources at all, being a closed uh, circular economy that recycles, that uses strictly renewable energy, 
you know, uses uh, uh, sewage for fertilizer, uh, you know, all the things that we know we ought to be doing and Game B is committed to doing all those things so that we can get into equilibrium with the earth. And if we can do that by the end of this century, that'd be a huge victory. Then we're not hippies in mud huts. We still believe humanity has this grand and glorious future. Personally, my vision is uh, humanity's job is to bring the universe to life. You know, you look at a telescope out at all these stars and galaxies. As far as we know, there's no other life, no other advanced life in the universe. And there may not be any other life in the universe. There may be. And it's also possible that science fiction writers were right and the galaxy is full of smart people. They just don't want to talk to us yet. Uh, so that I think is our destiny is to do one of two things is to over 10,000 years, 20,000 years, something like that, which is not very long, by the way, you know, we've been, uh, you know, uh, advanced humans for uh, maybe 200,000 years. So it's only 5% of the time we've been humans, five more percent, we could get to the stars, to the galaxy. And so we find one of two things. One, we're alone, in which case we have an unbelievable opportunity and obligation to change the universe from dead matter to living matter, uh, from just rocks laying there and gas and stuff to things that operate at a high level of interestingness. I would say that life is more interesting than non-life and smart life is more interesting than dumb life, right? And so bring the whole fucking universe to life. Mm. Now that might take us a billion years, but we could probably do the solar, the, the galaxy in a million years. Uh, the other, the other branch of for humanity is we get out there and we go shit. There's a whole bunch of other uh, intelligent species out here, and they have this very cool galactic civilization. Uh, but they didn't want to talk to us when we were, you know, murderous savages, uh, you know, uh, killing each other off. Uh, but once we finally got to learn how to play game B and emerge into the galaxy, they welcomed us into the galactic uh, civilization. And of course, there's a third case that. Uh, intergalactic war, but let's assume that one isn't the case, right? <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's my vision of what we do after we stabilize, right? And other people have other visions, right? Uh, and over time, uh, groups of groups of communities will say, we want to co coalesce around the idea of going and bringing the universe to life. Some other group of nodes might say, we want to uh, optimize around creating the most profound artwork imaginable for, human, for the human mind. And that's cool too. And, but that's the next stage uh, in evolution. The first thing we have to do is to how to learn, live in balance with the earth in a way that provide, that is way better for the human than the alternative mm -hmm. on offer by soul crushing game A. Okay. So game A is the systems in which we have built that are existentially self-terminating just by their the nature of exponential technology and resource depletion and in a finite world exponential finite growth in a finite world you know it doesn't take a whole lot of math to figure out that eventually ends yeah yep okay and so then game b is the processes in which it is the way of life in which we come back into alignment with the earth and reality at large, I would and say. And with our human psychology, right? Mm. People are fucking nuts these days. Have you noticed, right? Yeah, uh, we're, we're losing it. We're having we're, a meaning I mean, our crisis. Collective, uh, our collective sense-making is just utterly broken, right? It is. Uh, and I can go to in every level from aesthetics to governance to economics to the food that we that we eat 
you know, there's just a whole series. Of, in fact, that we still have, uh, you know, thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at each other. It's just yeah. like, what the fuck, right? Uh, and so, and it's getting worse. And uh, so, in, in many, many ways, as we call it the meta crisis. It's not just one crisis. Yeah. Uh, it's a whole series of crises. In fact, uh, we have some phone call uh, fairly recently with some leading thinkers in the game B world. And I think our general consensus was mass in social insanity from poorly designed and conceptualized uh, social media might actually be the highest single risk for social collapse in the next intermediate period of time. Man, that wouldn't surprise me at all if you, if we could somehow get the metric that, that would prove that, because I think that for me and the fractal of my own life, I think that's pretty much true. I was like, okay, like social media might be my biggest existential risk for my meaning and for my my psychological well-being. But I want to zoom in on one part of this. I was, you know, the I listened last night that 53% of the world's population lives under authoritarian regimes where their information is controlled, where they don't have freedom of speech, freedom of press, um, all of these different things. And I love what you talk about, the game B being tied into our food systems, being tied into our familial structure, into how we make sense into how we make meaning, um, into our relationship with the earth. All of these things are of critical import. And I want to bring another one up and get your input on, which is money. Because last night I was listening to a Lex Friedman podcast, and I can't remember the name of the guy. He works for the World Human Rights Foundation and... He's talking about how human rights has never dealt with money. Human rights has always been water and sewage and, and uh, genocide and all this shit. But one of the most foundational parts of human rights is who's making the money, who controls it, how do they control inflation, how are they using it to, to uh, manipulate the lives of their people. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on... You know, I know you had the founder of Cardano on your show. Yep. So and I'd love... Uh, it turns out my journey to Game B started with money. <laughs> Perfect. Yep. Uh, I became fascinated with the idea of alternative currencies. I also became fascinated with the obvious abuse of our financial systems. At the time, I was a senior executive at Thompson Corporation, and our, one of our biggest divisions was Thompson Financial Services. And we provide, we were the arms of corrupt to the finance industry. We sold them software and networks and information services uh, to compete viciously with each other and to exploit the masses. So I saw the sausage being made. And I had been studying alternative uh, financial systems for a long time. And I actually proposed my own monetary system. The voila, there, it's the YouTube of an hour and a half video uh, that uh, was recorded of me laying out the dividend money system, uh, which was actually the very first thing that was created by the people who became Game B. And so I'm a great believer that uh, monetary systems, and now I would say uh, our thinking has evolved a little further, that monetary systems are one example 
of uh, coordination signaling for group coherence, right? Because money really isn't wealth. And this is a hugely important distinction. Uh, if all the money in the world disappeared tomorrow and we generated a new money distributed differently, all the wealth of the world would still be there, right? The factories, the cars, the skills, the paragliders, uh, everything would still be there. Money is just a pointer. And in fact, this experiment was actually run in Austria, Hungary, and Germany in the early 20s when hyperinflation destroyed their monetary systems. They restarted with new money, completely new money. And within a week, their economies were rolling again. So uh, people over, they over-reify money. They think it actually is wealth. It's not. It's only a pointer to wealth. And, so, and it's under our control. You know, money was not brought down from Mount uh, Sinai by Moses on, a, on one of those tablets. It's something that's a whole series of frozen accidents. And there's some very good books on the history of money. And money could be very different than it is. And it's really important for us to understand that money is fundamental to how our society works and what it is in a real way. Yeah. I One of my segues into philosophy and deep thinking was uh, End the Fed by Ron Paul. And then The Case for Gold by Ron Paul, which helped me understand what money is, why we make it, how we make it, what is important about it. And he was exactly uh, wrong. He had it exactly ass backwards, uh, in my opinion, uh, that gold is exactly what you do not want in a monetary system for the same reason that Bitcoin is such a bad fucking idea. I mean, Bitcoin is like one of the, it's a, when I read Satoshi's paper, which I read about two months after it was published, before the software was even out, I go, this is fucking brilliant, right? But this is so wrongheaded. It's exactly the opposite of what we want in a monetary system. Uh, and uh, but but it's very but it's a gateway. I mean, I, I also started reading you know the case against gold and uh, oh, I actually read the case against gold. I also read the stuff for gold. And but you have to really think globally and realize that we can design the coordination signaling systems we want. We don't have to take historical anomalies like gold or Bitcoin, which is basically just crypto gold. It's all it is. Basically, it's a it's a slightly worse form of gold than actual gold for a number of reasons. Uh, but uh, but part of developing game B will clearly be developing things that people would think of as money and would operate in similar ways to coordinate the following things: consumption, production, and investment, right? Uh, those are the three things that a monetary system uh, needs to provide as a service. Uh, for the self-organization of communities at every scale. So, uh, you know, I'm absolutely with you that this is of the essence. Uh-huh. Okay. So, I, you know, from how I see Bitcoin, obviously it has its flaws in my mind, but the idea that the rules are fixed and don't bend towards one person or another, whether they be a peasant or a prince, and that it's finite, that there's only going to be 21 million coin ever minted, and that it's um, the ledger is public and decentralized. These are all what I understand as the critical upgrades to Bitcoin as uh, a currency over the fiat bullshit that we've been dealing with. But I guess let's hear the Jim Rutt. <laughs> Jim's case against Bitcoin. And by the way, this is uh, specifically targeted to Bitcoin and not some of the other uh, systems, right? Uh, Holochain, for instance, is a very interesting alternative. Uh, Cardano uh, has some very interesting attributes. 
Uh, Ethereum is certainly better than Bitcoin. It also has uh, some fundamental flaws, but it is way better than Bitcoin. Bitcoin manages to, to have almost all the bad things that one could put into a new currency in one system. So, Such as? <laughs> okay, first, the fixed quantity, uh, which guarantees that it'll be deflationary. You do not want a deflationary currency. The reason you don't is because it, it provides a strong incentive for people to hoard the currency. Mm-hmm. And the last thing you want in a currency is for it to be hoarded because a hoarded currency is utterly sterile. Mm-hmm. Um, again, money is a coordination signaling system. You want money to circulate. And so based on my analysis, you want money that is mildly inflationary, uh, probably one to two percent more than uh, uh, the growth of GDP. So mildly inflationary so that people have an incentive to not hold it or use so-called demurrage which is a tax on the holding of money. That's an alternative. And as you'll see, if you uh, watch my video, which I put into the chat box, uh, my proposed system has knobs, which allow us uh, to adjust both the quantity of money and the velocity of money through demurrage. And so I think Bitcoin's exactly ass backwards in that, uh, in that but perspective. But isn't the fact that you have a knob on it, isn't the fact that someone can control the knob, isn't that ah, the problem? Well, that's the beauty of things like, for instance, look at Cardano or Ethereum. Uh, you can have the knob controlled by a smart contract. Right. And so let's say that the knob, uh, let's say the two main knobs on dividend money are uh, monetary growth rate and the demurrage, which is either interest or tax on your money holdings. If you want, it's interesting. Sometimes you may want to have interest. If you want the economy to slow down a little bit because it's getting overheated, getting inflationary, you actually want to pay a bit of a dividend to hold money. If uh, the economy is sluggish, you want to tax the holding of money. So you want to have those knobs. Let's well, those knobs are under, uh, widespread democratic control using something like social democracy, which I've, uh, as you know, uh, written on quite a bit. And it's implemented through smart contracts in something like an Ethereum type or Cardano type smart contract environment. You can have those knobs settable, but without having any government to do it, right? We set them ourselves. Uh, So that's possible uh, and desirable, I would argue, for deep fundamental reasons. Uh, uh, Second big problem with Bitcoin, and this in the short term is its biggest, uh, my biggest objection to it, is that the radical trustlessness uh, comes at an exceedingly high cost. Uh, And the high cost is mining, right? Uh, You know, mining uh, is now a measurable amount of all energy consumed on earth is now mining Bitcoin. It's doing nothing but accelerating the heat death of the universe at the Mm -hmm. highest uh, level. In the shorter term, a lot of it's in places uh, where coal, because coal is still cheap, right? It's pure greenhouse gas into the air. And there's no getting out of that. It will always be very expensive to mine because even when uh, there's only a few coins left, they'll still have to mine uh, for transactions, et cetera. So Bitcoin, to to get radical trustlessness goes to crazy extremes using this very clever trick that Satoshi came up with of mining. You can do a, what's so-called um, uh, proof of work. You can use another method uh, called proof of authority uh, that's a million times less expensive energetically. Essentially, the, uh, uh, you know, the system just mints money periodically based on some algorithm that's set by smart contracts, and it puts teeny, teeny little contracts out once a se- uh, t- tokens out once a second so that you can update your transactions more rapidly. Of course, that's the other problem with Bitcoin. You, uh, transactions don't settle. They take up to 
you know, an hour or more before a transaction actually settles uh, in Bitcoin. And, and if you've noticed, the transaction fees in both Bitcoin and Ethereum have gotten exceedingly pricey uh, because of the fact that the, the mechanism by which uh, transactions are done are ridiculously still linked to this very expensive process called, uh, called um, uh, mining. So I've proposed that rather than having a, a radical trustlessness, instead you have moderate trustlessness by using a coalition. So let's suppose you had 50 servers that were uh, run by very disparate elements. You know, the uh, uh, New York Public Library, the Chinese Red Army, you know, Goldman Sachs, uh, David Graeber, too bad he's not around anymore. He'd be a great guy to run one of the servers. And so the, the, you have a whole bunch of people who operate servers and a consensus of a majority of them has to sign any transaction uh, to make it happen. Uh, further, all the servers have the legal right and they're encouraged to publish the whole blockchain because it would still be blockchain based so that the world can see everything, radical transparency, just like Bitcoin and Ethereum have. Uh, and you can do that uh, by, again, probably 100,000 times uh, faster and cheaper uh, than the crazy way transactions are done on Bitcoin and the only slightly less crazy way uh, transactions are done on Ethereum and only the slightly less crazy way that they're done on Cardano. So uh, those are, are all fundamental problems. Another one, and this is, this is one that people will disagree with, on me, with me on this, uh, but one I think is important. Uh, one of the problems with Bitcoin and frankly, most all of the current crop of uh, crypto money is the emphasis on uh, anonymity. Uh, I would go the opposite. I'd require every account to be registered in a real name. Uh, if uh, the accounts were for things like trusts or corporations, uh, I'd establish a rule. This is a rule Jordan Hall and I came up with together through uh, some deep thinking that no artificial entity may be more than uh, four steps removed from an actual human. So that, uh, you know, if you, if you see money go into a bin, you have to be able to track it from, you know, let's say a trust to a, to a, a, a venture capital fund, to a company, to an individual within four steps, uh, and those have to be verifiable. And, and all the and for instance, you have to know who owns all the legal entities, etc. Uh, anonymity and opacity are the enemies of doing good. We talk about game A uh, as a way to be a motherfucker, right? Part of the way you be a motherfucker is not let people know you be a motherfucker, right? No, so, uh, to my mind, anonymity is the enemy of the good. Okay. So anyway, I have a long case against Bitcoin. I can go on for a while. But anyway, okay, but as far as I know, in Bitcoin, there's a number of different things that are being iterated, that are being developed, that actually solve like the Bitcoin bottleneck of uh, transactions that are like another layer on top they, of it. They do side change, for instance. Yeah, I mean, yeah there's all kinds of things that do all kinds of transactions and they bundle them so that that yeah. one transaction uh, – does a bunch of different small transactions. Yesterday, I'm trying to send my buddy some Ethereum. It's 13 bucks for me to send him Ethereum. Yeah, Jesus. And if you, did so, you do something on Uniswap, it's like $50, right? That's uh, crazy. I, I have a, a trade on Uniswap, which I uh, put stuff into and out of from time to time. Every time I touch it, it's 50 fucking dollars. It's crazy. And of course, you say, oh, yeah, they're going to fix it. How long have they been saying they're going to fix Ethereum and Bitcoin? As, as long as I can remember, it ain't done diddly, right? Uh, when you want radical trustlessness, uh, what do you mean by that? What do you mean radical, radical trustlessness? Uh, radical trustlessness is you trust nobody, right? 
nobody has any authority whatsoever over the system. Uh, every because you know anyone can become a uh, a Bitcoin blockchain server. Anyone can do it, right? Of course. And, and uh, for 150 bucks, you can have a little uh, Raspberry Pi in your house that yeah, yeah, exactly. runs the and, thing. And, and you can and and you can not only of course mine or whatever, but you can also have the whole world uh, read your the transactions of the whole rest of the world, right? Yep. And that is very elegant. And it's for if you were using it just for smart contracts. Suppose that, for instance, you were doing all house mortgages, home mortgages on uh, Bitcoin, or the, let's use Ethereum because that's actually has smart contracts. Uh, Ethereum is actually would be a good platform for implementing all the home, home mortgages in the country. The rate at which we do home mortgages is sufficiently slow uh, that the uh, you know eight or ten transactions a second are way more than you need, so it's plenty plenty good for that. Uh, and so uh, radical trustlessness might actually make sense uh, for uh, smart contracts for actual business uh, negotiations and large uh, uh, transactions. But to go buy a uh, Big Mac at McDonald's with Ethereum, fucking crazy. Uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, you don't need radical trustlessness uh, for T money, for transaction money. And so you, you may keep something like Ethereum or Bitcoin to be the equivalent of gold or interbank transfers. But to front the world, you need something that's designed to have high transaction rates that settle quickly and aren't uh, pumping unbelievably large amounts of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're on the same page here. Definitely the environmental cost of mining Bitcoin is just insane. Um, And that was one, that was the way that it was created. That was the way it was designed to be bound by that computer processing and it was a brilliant hack by Satoshi to be able to get true um, uh, trust, radical trustlessness. Uh, yeah. uh, but and for again, for certain use cases, it would be fine. But to try to use it as money is fucking nuts. Yeah, transactionally, but transactionally, it, but it seems for. like that's already been solved with so many of the third-party settlement systems that settle and bunch and then put it on the blockchain. I'm not a. I'm definitely not a. Bitcoin um, expert by any means, but um, it seems like a decentralized monetary system is of the essence. And I guess I'm curious what you think, what you make of Bitcoin being 65 grand a coin right now. It's still, you know, there's, you know, almost 2% of the world has transacted in Bitcoin. What do you make of that? Where's it going? Hard to say because it's a collective hallucination, like all money, right? Uh, and it's uh, it's uh, formally unstable. Another, when I say formally, I mean that mathematically you can show that the value of Bitcoin is entirely unstable, uh, and I can make no predictions about its future course uh, because it's uh, essentially anticipation of anticipation of anticipation about the future of things that we don't can't possibly know. So Bitcoin could go to 6 million, Bitcoin could go to 6 cents. And uh, I really have no principled way to make any sense of it at all. I will say, I will say this, I recently sold a quarter of my crypto hoard and will probably be selling uh, at least another quarter in the next four to six weeks. between now and the end of the year, actually. And so, you know, notice two things. One, for the very first time, I have sold. You know, I've had Bitcoin since the very beginning. Uh, and But two, I have not sold 
the majority of my holdings. So again, this is, uh, this is my perspective that I don't know, fuck what's going to happen in the future and nobody can know, but it smells to me like it's getting mighty toppy. Huh? That's a good insight. But I guess I'm curious though, because you do have a case against it, but nest the current toppiness of crypto and trendiness or explosion or however we want to put it nest that inside of this movement from game a to game b is this an overall positive thing is this completely misled is it it's very uh, very very game a right uh it's exceedingly game a but mm. uh you know bitcoin in particular i mean it literally is gold uh crypto gold uh but ethereum the idea of smart contracts now that is huge and interesting and Cardano and Holochain and uh, the other smart contract platforms. And probably uh, Game B will uh, use the idea of smart contracts uh, as, a, as a, a method of implementing governance and communications and transactions, particularly between the nodes. So keep in mind a proto B, one of these under, on the ground communities, we aim it to be about 150 people. And it's our thought uh, to, to the degree possible, avoid very much technology in that, right? So the whole idea of a proto B is to be a true face-to-face -face community uh -huh. and to rely upon our high bandwidth ability to interact with other fellow humans in a, in a realistic fashion. Uh -huh. But the proto Bs will be doing uh, work with each other and trading, have their own micro economy. They'll have elections for, you know, people who, uh, you know, who manage the commons, et cetera. And for those things, smart contracts will be really, really uh, useful. So in this weird sense, I think that the current instantiations of most of the things on the blockchain are game A motherfucker par excellence, but the underlying technology of smart contracts, uh, digital autonomous organizations, et cetera, uh, which are kind of like corporations, which can be managed through uh, token holdings uh, are potentially really, really powerful, particularly if you uh, implement them in a way that breaks the anonymity where let's say you had a, you had a coin, a token uh, to manage, let's say the DAO of inter proto B uh, trade. Uh, that could be amazing. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad they're doing it, but I think that they did it all for all the wrong reasons. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, it won't end up rebounding for the uh, for the benefit of humanity. For how about that? For a long way around to an answer. All right, all right. It's it's got its flaws, but it's a step forward. Well, it's the technology enables other steps forward which have not yet been made. Okay, I think it's a better way to say it. And to clarify, a proto B is a person who is enacting game B ethics, values, techniques in a game A world. No, no, a proto B is a group of people doing it, of about 150 living together uh, to enact uh, proto B, uh, to act uh, game A values as much as they can uh, embedded in game A and actively parasitizing game A uh, by selling export services to game A in ways that actually pull money out of game A into game B to build more game B. Love it. And in fact, I wrote a whole paper about all this shit called A Journey to Game B. It's on Medium. Uh, uh -huh. I will give you the limp. Uh, and about half the paper is about proto-Bs. Now, a lot of it is 
I've read that and I'll put the link to the YouTube video about your monetary design, as well as this journey to game B link in the description. I recommend everybody check those out. Um, And of course, don't forget network wars and network wars, the cool game that's available on both iOS and Android network wars. That's two words. That's two words. And remember, Jim, if you want to bail on your crypto, that I'll take some of it, as well as people can support my podcast on Patreon. And Jim, you can too. You could be my sponsor. This show could be sponsored by the Jim Rutt Show. That would be very exciting. First oh, that's ever. Cool. I, I actually sponsor a lot of people on Patreon. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Happy, happy to do it. Well, uh, consider I'm, supporting me. Oh, I will. Uh, but of course, it won't be for a massive sum, but uh, better than nothing, right? <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, email um, me a link to your Patreon thingy. Uh, will and, do. And I'll give you a, 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 I'll sign you up for a monthly stipend. Thanks, buddy. Okay, well, it's great catching up with you. I'm glad you're doing well. Let's stay in touch. We'll talk again in a couple months. Yeah, as always, it's been a wonderful, energized conversation, right? That's right. I love talking to Ari in the air. That's right, Jim. Well, thanks for your time. Enjoy your day, buddy. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Yeah. Okay, you guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Check out the Jim Rutt Show. Um, he's got clout, and he fucking hauls in some seriously heavy-hitting guests and he also does a lot of research before his recordings and has really good interviews uh i can't recommend his show more it's definitely sick that's the jim rutt show um and yeah thanks for listening if you like this show please consider supporting it on patreon that's patreon.com slash airy in the air you can do that for as little as five dollars a month and top tier patrons get coaching calls with me okay thanks so much for listening You guys take care. We'll see you on the next episode.